All right, everyone, on today's episode, we're going to talk about experiments in financial independence. We're going to talk about inflation, and we're going to talk about revocable living trust. Welcome to the Ultimate Crowdsource Personal Finance Show. This is Choose FI. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys, very excited to dive into this week's episode. And to help me with this, I have my co-host, Brad, here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I am doing quite well. Yeah, so experiments in financial independence, right? You uh, you kind of intrigued me before we started recording with something you've got going on. And, and what's funny is when we started the show way back in 2016, the tagline was experiments in financial independence. And obviously, it's evolved from there. But I think at its heart, you and I are still trying out new things constantly, right? We're trying to learn. We're trying to test things. We're trying to see what works, what's worth our time, what isn't worth our time. And we have both grown and evolved significantly, but at our hearts, we're still doing stuff. So what are you working on? Well, I thought I'd give you guys an update on the Mendanza garden, the humble garden that the Mendanza <laughs> family uh, decided to start. In fact, maybe you could pull up the episode, but we had a community member leave us a voicemail a while back advising us if we wanted to tiptoe in the world of gardening to start with garden boxes and zucchini. So you may or may not be able to find that episode number. I, I will defer to you if you can grab it. I am Googling choose if I zucchini. We'll see. Or squash, maybe. I don't <laughs> know. Or, or garden. Well, yeah, you let me know. You just say, raise your hand when you have it. Um, I decided to go for it. So it's probably only fair in, in the context of experiments and financial independence to talk about my outlay, like how much I spent on this. So we're talking, I got three garden boxes at either Lowe's or Home Depot. They run about 50 bucks a pop. So I'm all, like $150 in. A couple bags of the gardening soil to go on top. So that's going to be, you know, probably in our 20 bucks, maybe like that. So I'm like a hundred, let's just say I have $150, $160 invested in this gardening project. I buy some seeds online, some zucchini seeds, and maybe spend 10 bucks. I don't know. I have extra seeds. So it's not totally fair. There's extra seeds that haven't been planted. And I plant them uh, four months ago, you know, make sure they're getting watered. And, you know, we're getting some nice green leaves that are clearly look like they're healthy. And at some point maybe we'll produce some sort of vegetable. <laughs> um, but I, I'll be honest with you, Brad, I don't know exactly what I'm expecting, but I'm doing a little calculus right now. And I, I think that in, in my perfect scenario, if everything goes as planned by this fall, I will probably have six to eight zucchini. Maybe if the rabbits don't eat them sitting on top of the soil. And I gotta be honest, like, it's going to take me several years to now make that net positive, <laughs> but it was an experiment. We did try it. So I just, you know, I'm just being honest here. I don't know if this was, I haven't drastically decreased my vegetable bill. I kind of thought I would be eating my zucchini by now, my squash, juicing it, et cetera, organic zucchini squash, but i um, still waiting for these leaves to do something. And I'm not even sure to be honest with you, and someone's going to laugh at me. I'm not even sure if it's going to be above the ground or below the ground. I suspect <laughs> above. But if it's above, it definitely hasn't happened yet. Interesting. Okay. Well, so, yeah, there's a lot there. Obviously, first, it's kind of cool 
a cool accomplishment that you went out, did all this effort, created this this box that you can make it and and hopefully these things grow. That said, right, you're a hundred plus dollars in and maybe, maybe if you're lucky, you'll get a handful of uh, zucchini. So, I mean, clearly from a cost benefit analysis, probably not worth it. Was it a fun experiment? Yeah, probably. But I wonder if, if that leads us to like, what are like high value and low value, like almost like the 80, 20 analysis of some of these things. And, and I'm just thinking about this on the fly. So maybe this is something we do in a future episode, but like, I'm thinking in terms of something like, like basil. I know Laura used to have a, a basil plant. It was the easiest thing in the world to grow. We were able to have multiple things of pesto per summer. It was, I mean, it was, it costs like a couple bucks for the pesto plant. What, you know, this is in my mind's eye. Obviously, Laura would have all the details. No, but, no that sounds about accurate. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was that's high value as opposed to I know anytime we've we've tried to grow anything or I'm thinking about my father in law trying to grow carrots. And at the end of the day, he had maybe like seven one inch carrots. And I'm thinking like this was an entire year's worth of cultivation right. and it made for a great story. Honestly, it was it was a hilarious story and he still tells it. But and you can go out for 99 cents and buy a bag of carrots that has 100 or 150 or whatever it is, little baby carrots for, like I said, a buck. So high value, low value. I mean, clearly we're just talking about about growing items, but there's something here, Jonathan. I suspect we could do a whole episode on this. We have a lot of topics in the queue, but it is worth pointing out, you know, with my humble non-harvest at this point, I am already wondering what would it look like to do it right? You know, because I got some tips. I was talking to this group of people. They are in a farming family and I was getting her advice on how to, uh, you know, I have this compost. Do I put the compost on there. How do I do this? How do I, you know, what should I be expecting? She was advising me, you know, you plant one batch of seeds, three to five seeds on one end of the box, three to five seeds on the other. And then you let both of them come up and then you pick the healthier, the one you pull the other one out. That way this one could overtake. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, that's half my harvest. That's half my, (laughs) you want me to pull half so this can have more room to run. And maybe that is the best option, but it feels like automatically I'm locking in a 50% of possible harvest. You know, you got to start no matter how bad you are and how bad the economics are in order to improve, you have to have a baseline. And my baseline is zero right now, but you know, leafy greens on top. And maybe at some point I will then have one or two or six or whatever. Maybe they'll grow like weeds. How do I improve on this? Cause somebody's making a living doing this. Do you need to have acres and acres before it's profitable? You know, it, I've looked into tactics like square foot gardening. So you're, you're talking about higher, right? You're right. Mint grows like a weed, put mint inside of a box. Cause it grows like a weed. Basil also grows very easy. It grows for the whole season. Do you, you know, like with anything that you start, then you can go deeper into the community. You can find out a little bit more. I haven't given up on this yet, but I got to say, uh, right now, even the high premium end organic, you know, produce that you would buy at Wegmans is going to be a much better ROI than, than what I'm getting personally gardening. And I'm not getting any love of gardening. So it's more just like, come on, you owe me. I put all this time in, I did this now I, you, I deserve at least 10 zucchini out of this. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. I was reading something about structured water can increase the yield. I was like, okay, you know, first of all, watering sounds good. What is structured water? What does that even mean? So I don't know, maybe there's a lot of room here to improve uh, the yield, but we're, we're going for it. I will continue to report back. Hopefully at some point I will be able to report that our, you know, cost per homegrown zucchini was only $22 per zucchini. And it was the most delicious zucchini we've ever had. Uh, right now though, that is not the case. Experiments nonetheless, though. I like it. Experiments nonetheless. 
You know, I thought while we were kind of talking about past episodes, one of the things we could do is spend a couple minutes talking about the episode that we did most recently with Big Earn. Uh, I'll look up the episode number uh, 331. We asked Earn, or Karsten, writes over Early Retirement Now, to join us on the show. And I believe Karsten had some background actually working as an economist for the Federal Reserve. So you could not imagine a more qualified person inside the financial independence space to come break down what it is that we're seeing. But that episode, although it was very informative, you know, it wasn't, it didn't give Brad or myself the opportunity to react to it quite as much as I would have liked just in the context, because there's so much information that we were just digesting. I thought maybe I would come back to that after having kind of sifted through that and having a couple of weeks just to comment a little bit more on our own individual takeaways, because they're different, I believe. If you guys listened to that episode, 331, choosify.com slash 331, you heard probably a little bit more urgency in my voice, just generally, like maybe a little bit more, maybe paranoia or fear, or I don't know exactly what term you want to put it, but just a little bit more uncertainty about what it actually means. And I, I think it is fair to say that that is to some degree accurate and isn't totally mirrored like one-to-one with maybe what Brad has experienced. So you have two individuals that both are hosting a you know personal finance podcast that are looking at the data that we're seeing and you know it's affecting us slightly differently. And I think that is worthy of an additional conversation because I know that there are many people in our community that have similar questions. And we have assets that are invested and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And it's not one that we should just breeze by lightly because we're living in just an interesting time, an interesting, interesting time. So Brad, that was a quick summary. Um, I guess I'll let you react to that first and then we can dive into maybe some specifics. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summary. And I mean, I think the most important backdrop is personal finance is truly personal. We're all entitled to make decisions and have questions as we see fit according to our background, our knowledge, our information sources. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. And I think you, at the end of the day, you have to do what helps you sleep at night, right? I mean, there are mathematically optimal ways of living life, of living your finances. And even though I'm an accountant and theoretically you would think that I would subscribe to that theory, I don't necessarily. I think emotion and our brains get in the way of a lot of this stuff. And I think that's fine. And I think that's perfectly plausible. So of course it's personal. And of course we have our own questions. And of course we have our own opinions and and points of view. And I think that's perfectly fine. So yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot of anxiety. You see it in, in the media. You see it in articles you read online. You see it on social media about inflation and prices going up in certain things. And you, you know, you use the word hyperinflation probably 10 times in our episode with Big Earn. And, you know, I mean, you hear these words and I think that's why we get experts like Earn on and we move forward with more information, right? And you've potentially updated your worldview or you have a little more information to the next time you read an article to be able to discern maybe a little bit better. And and that doesn't mean you change your opinion necessarily if you don't think it's warranted. But I think that's a rational way of, of just looking at life is you take in information, you try to find reasonable, rational sources, and you try to move forward and make decisions with that as now part of what exists in your brain. So I personally got a lot out of the conversation with Ern for sure. Yeah, and I think people from kind of all different perspectives would have gotten value just generally from that episode. It's a very grounded episode. It gave us a good lay of the land. I think the the big you know point of contrast 
Um, and, I, and I did use the word hyperinflation several times in the episode, but one of the points that I was actually trying to make is that you aren't given like this is hyperinflation versus this is transitory inflation. That's just more of a timescale of inflation and how aggressive it ends up being. All hyperinflation scenarios started out with just regular old, you know, run of the mill inflation. It, it starts that way. And so, you know, you have the spectrum of transitory inflation. And then maybe the verbiage is sustained inflation and then sustained inflation that doesn't get reeled in over a period of time to earn's point. Now you start to have fears of hyperinflation. And then at that point, now you do actually have hyper. Now, now it's not to say that that is the path that we're on, but it's certainly to say that like, if you were going to have hyperinflation, you would start with everyone talking about transitory inflation. Right. And that's perfectly reasonable, right? Like if anybody is sitting here saying there is a 0% chance of essentially anything, but certainly a 0% chance of hyperinflation, I'd say you're crazy. It's not 0%. I don't know if it's 0.0001 or you probably think it's dramatically higher than that. Even dramatically higher than that might be 1%, right? That's dramatically higher than what I think the likelihood yeah. is. But if you're saying it's zero, you're crazy. I mean, do I expect any world where the United States has Zimbabwe-esque hyperinflation? I think the answer is as close to zero as humanly possible. But do I think it's zero? No, of course it's not zero. And that's why we take information in. Yeah, and, and while I don't see a, a Zimbabwe or Venezuela-style inflation coming here, at the, at the same point, there and I don't want to get political, but there is no party of fiscal responsibility in this country. We have no one, literally zero individuals that are that have any interest in fiscal responsibility. And, and then the question is, well, what is the best way to inflate our way or tax our way out of our problems? Maybe, but I mean, all of us know, I don't care if what, what side of the political spectrum you're on, know, there is no one left anywhere that has any real desire to balance our budget. Even and maybe some people would say that's a bad idea. It would be the worst thing possible to try to balance the budget, which, you know, for those of us that spend time balancing our budgets at the personal level, maybe we have some some level of like, well, that's kind of alarming. But others are like, well, no, it's not the same when it's a government, it's different. And there's other economic factors that are play that are too complex. And okay, great. You got a degree. You're smarter than I am. It seems to me that like generally when a budget is not balanced over the long term, long term, it doesn't end well. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe it doesn't. But either way, one of the points that I made, and I snuck it in there and Ern acknowledged it, but like we could have spent a whole episode talking about it is at the very end of the episode, I asked Ern, Ern, what about gold? What about gold? And Ern rightly pointed out, I've actually done the studies on gold over the period of time. It's decent. If you look at it over the span of, you know, the investing history, you know, it does an okay job. It's not going to do as well as an index fund. And I made this point and I was like, well, earn through the lens of negative correlation. How does gold perform during times of inflation fears or during times of inflation? And he's like, oh yeah, well, during those periods of times, it, do, it does really, really well. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to tie this back to Frank, the episode we did with Frank talking about diversification, specifically diversification we misuse that term. What a lot of us probably want is negative correlation, negative correlation. And I will tell you that in March of 2020, when I was pretty close to 100% equities, it was not fun to watch all of my numbers, all of my investments go in the exact same direction and have no moves on the table. That wasn't fun for me. It was fine. I wasn't, you didn't scare panic sell or anything like that, but it wasn't fun. And when the market got closer to, you know, near all time highs, and I was saying, well, would I want to do that again? I was evaluating, really taking seriously what Frank was talking about, about this idea of negative correlation. 
And just to sneak this in here, that's Frank Vasquez, and he has the podcast Risk Parity Radio, P-A-R-I-T-Y, Risk Parity Radio, which is a wonderful, wonderful podcast that I would definitely recommend everybody subscribe to. So Jonathan, keep going. I wanted to sneak that in. No, great, great. So if we look back at crashes over time, crashes happen for different reasons. They happen because of housing market crashes. They happen because of viruses and pandemics. They happen because of wars. They happen for various reasons. But I don't think in this country we have seen any sort of scenario where we've had really any sort of economic decline due to inflation. So this is some sort of additional like episode that we would need to run. Maybe Aaron could help us with this. But I was thinking through, it makes sense to me in past times where the safe money runs to bonds when confidence in the government is near at an all-time high. It runs to government bonds. It runs to treasury. So when the economy is shaky, businesses are shaky because the underlying fundamentals are weak, et cetera, the safe money runs to government bonds and treasuries and inflation-protected treasuries, et cetera. But what does it mean when you have a scenario where confidence in the government is eh, meh at best and low at worst because you have a situation where inflation is setting in. Does the safe money still run to bonds? In that scenario, we can't go back and we can't look at what happened in 2020, which was not, that's not what we're describing. We can't go back and even really the whole lot look, maybe maybe in 2007, maybe in 2008. And I would say actually in 2007, 2008, safe money did run to bonds. Bonds actually did pretty good. So in a future that I don't know the answer to, but if there is a situation where we have sustained inflation, will the money still run to bonds? Because if that's the case and you're looking for negative correlation, then you know Frank can look at all the historical data and say that there's these types of bonds that historically have been very negatively correlated. But I'm telling you, Brad, like right now from your perspective as someone that's in the accumulation phase, do bonds right now look very attractive to you? <laughs> Not excessively, though, in fairness, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about bonds. So yeah, they're maybe never attractive to me. Right. So you, you and I historically do, you know, I don't have, I've never wanted to have personally, I'm in the accumulation phase. I'm not in the wealth preservation phase. So maybe it's a little bit different, but bonds basically looking at locking in low returns and maybe in some scenarios they hold the line or they go up, you know, in, in some sort of environments. But if what I am concerned about over the short term is some sort of of let's just use the word sustained inflationary environment where you're looking at one year or two years of sustained inflation, not a crisis level hyperinflation, but sustained inflation. We just had our second month of uh, the CPI came in this month. We're recording this in the month of July for the month of June. It was a 5.4. The prior month that came in at 5%, which is what Earn was talking about in the episode. Yeah. And that was actually the biggest takeaway that I had with with Aaron was that you know he's talking about okay maybe again not the zimbabwe-esque hyperinflation because i think that it's become a buzzword right you think of trillion dollar bills you know being used to buy a loaf of bread or something and again the likelihood of that in the us is as close to zero as possible but it doesn't have to be that to meet this definition right and he was talking about and and to me this was a very rational way of looking at it in 2022, and I forget the exact month or quarter he said, but at some point in 2022, if we're still averaging, I think 6% was the amount that he said, then we need to start considering, okay, is this sustained? Is this hyperinflation? So it doesn't have to be 100% inflation per month, right? And I think that that was an interesting nugget of, okay, 
let's dial back the hyperbole a little bit and let's just say, okay, this is still, it's not a sustainable amount, even like you were saying at five or 6%. So that again was my takeaway. And that's like a, a very rational and reasonable way of looking at, all right, there's a time in 2022, let's look at it. And then we have to say, all right, look, this has been going on for X number of months. We need to start adopting our thinking. And I think your point would be, I don't want to just wait. So there is a reasonable chance based on the information that I'm taking in and what I'm seeing month by month with these precise results and saying, okay, I think based on my thesis, this may sustain itself. What do I have to do? Do I do anything differently? And I think, again, personal finance is personal. And I think regardless, that is a very reasonable way of looking at it. Yep. You know, from my point of view, like I've said, you know, three times now, I cannot envision a scenario where we're walking around paying a trillion dollars for a loaf of bread. But even putting that aside, if we're talking unsustainable inflation at 6%, that's a whole separate issue, right? Because even anybody is walking around saying, oh, wow, things are going up in price. I'm seeing it in day to day. So you'd have to have your head in the sand to not see that, to not see asset prices inflating in a variety of different aspects in life. So, you know, Jonathan, I know you are dramatically more worried. And again, you might be 1% worried, but you're dramatically more worried than I am, let's say. Fair enough. And But even still, I'm saying, I think it's a perfectly reasonable point of view to be aware of this and even to be potentially worried, you know, if what you're seeing and you expect it to continue. So I think there's nothing, nothing irrational about that at all. So, you know, anybody listening to this part with any level of interest, please do not take this as actual investing advice. We're having a conversation. I'm going to share with you a little bit about, you know, my decision tree in the next few minutes here. And I would encourage you, if this is at all interesting, just to go do your own due diligence. I am not an expert. This is just coming from a place of sharing what I'm doing, not from a place of what you should do. But I think it's an interesting conversation. And I think, you know, for those of you that maybe have kind of wondered what does it mean that I feel like my grocery bill has gone up or that gas has gone from 179 to 299 a gallon or that I saw it spark at three or four dollars for a quick little bit here? You know, what does that mean uh, in terms of my financial plans? The next couple of minutes should be interesting. So for individuals that are completely caught up on our episodes, you remember several months ago, I was talking about how it was basically when we were doing the episodes with GameStop and we were talking about short sales, et cetera. And right around that same time, I had gotten wind that there was a lot of talk around how there could be some sort of shortage in the silver supply. And we had an extended segment about it. We can find the episode and link it up in this one. But it was just very interesting to me to, to hear that. And I, I found out about this community called, um, I think it's called Wall Street Silver Reddit, something, something like that. And I was just kind of getting embedded in the silver bug community. And it was kind of like a siloed instance. But then, you know, as it gets mirrored in on top of what we're talking about now, you're kind of having the synthesis. You're like, I wonder if there's something here where there's potentially an upshot for something that has been, you know, low for the last decade. Silver has performed badly. It's performed badly for a decade, but now demand is really high with it being used in a lot of solar and EV, et cetera. So industry demand is at an all-time high. And now you also have individual investor demand growing at a time where there's also fears about inflation. Is there maybe some sort of upshot? So I got embedded in this community and 
I, as I started to dig around, I was just starting to think about what role does, you know, precious metal specifically, I mentioned gold or but really I'm just talking about precious metals, physical assets. What role do they hold in a portfolio? And, and you can look around just the generic personal finance space. You could look at Ray Dalio's all weather portfolio. You could look at many other portfolios and they will tell you, you should have some percentage. If you're trying to have a diversified quote unquote portfolio, you should have some percentage dedicated to precious metals, whether or not it's 5% or 10%. Some of the more extreme, uh, would say, you know, maybe even 20%. And I was like, okay, you know, as I'm looking at this, I'm kind of excited about the, uh, what silver might actually do. I'm kind of concerned about, you know, what is going on just generally in the market. Should I consider tilting a percentage of my portfolio? So I tried it. I started tilting. I started actually moving some money. I don't have any bonds. So first of all, in terms of like, if you're thinking about, you know, someone that's in the accumulation phase, some people are 60, 40 stocks to bonds. Some people are, I have zero bonds. So I was hundred percent equities. Now I'm thinking maybe I want to tilt. And I started at like five, 10. Now I think I'm somewhere between 10 to 20% is kind of allocated towards, you know, generally precious metals. And this has happened over the last six months. And I got to say, it hasn't done anything. Like I have not made any money. I might, it might've even gone down a little bit here. I don't think it can go to zero is kind of where I'm going with this. And I don't think it can go too much lower because it is representing a physical asset. So in, in my thought process here was if I'm wrong and this is just transitory inflation and we get back out and we just, proceed our course. I've taken 20% of my chips off the table basically, and they're languishing and I put them back in. If I'm right. And a year from now it gets announced, Oh, by the way, this is sustained inflation. Well, guess what? At that point, precious metals have probably already, you know, gone up and silver. If it's already been on the cusp because there was some quote unquote, silver squeeze, silver shortage, it's probably gone up dramatically. So in my mind, Brad, this just goes to the point of like, asymmetric risk. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and like you said, this is not investing advice. Uh, this is something that, that you are doing. I am obviously, uh, as of now, I'm certainly not, not investing in precious metals. But what I'm interested in is your concept of utility, actually. That's where my mind went. So we've talked about this before. And it's funny, as you were saying that, I'm like, huh, Okay. So, and, and again, I, I know nothing about silver. I'm not going to even claim to, but if you're saying it's in electric vehicles or solar panels or whatever it was you said, or, you know, the, and there's a shortage, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, utility makes sense to me. Okay. So I see this in uh, just three random things off the top of my head that we've talked about over the years, right? So gold has very, very little utility. It is a store of value, but it's essentially inert. It just sits there. But if you're saying that, okay, there's a slight pivot of silver, which actually has utility, but it's still a precious metal. It's still the same concept. Okay. That at least makes some sense to me. You know, again, we're not getting into cryptocurrency, but, but just from the little that I've researched on it, Bitcoin is basically the gold equivalent. It's a store of value. It's basically inert. It doesn't more or less do anything at this point. Whereas contrasted with, at least as of now, something like Ethereum, which actually does have utility today. Again, I have no idea what's going to happen a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, but today you can actually use Ethereum or Ether to buy things. So that makes sense. You know, real estate investing, right? We've talked about my ridiculous failures with speculation on inert, empty land versus now the success that I've had in a very small way with single family rentals, which is something that has utility. Someone wants to live there. Someone's going to pay me an income stream 
to own that asset, right? And to live in that that house, that asset for X period of months or years. So it's funny that that was where my mind went immediately, Jonathan, when you're talking about this. So I like that thought process that you're talking about in this particular case with silver, that there's actual utility to it. So yeah, I'm always just trying to bring it back to like how my mind works. Yeah, what you pointed out is really good. And it's a balancing act. So all these things are supply and demand. But if you have two aspects to that, you have utility. So industry demand is utility in this case. And then you have investor demand being paired next to that. And both are going up at the same point. Then now, you know, because it has to be used, it dry, the supply and demand uh, equation is kind of getting out of line, forcing you know the price going up as a particular function. And what gets interesting about that when you're building on it, though, is just like with GameStop and AME and all these meme stocks that you hear out there, you hear people talking about how the price is really interesting because the options markets have gotten things all out of whack and you have futures contracts and derivatives market. You've actually hear contract things being talked about like synthetic silver out there and situations where you have some funds that have multiple claims on the same silver. So if it were ever to come down to it, demand were to be extremely high, whose claim counts? And so this is why I'm saying, don't just take whatever we say right now as the end all be all, oh, you know, I'm going to go, go look into this further, go find out what silver bugs, people that have spent all this time looking into the, if you decide silver, something you want to look into, what do they actually say to invest in? What funds do they get excited about? Because you don't want a situation where this stuff is really in demand and people are trying to figure out which claim really counts. And that's what they're complaining about over at GameStop. How can you have more shares in the market? then there are shares, more shares being traded than there are shares. So things are just kind of interesting in this world right now. But if utility is interesting to you, if supply and demand is interesting to you, um, I think it's something that, you know, that's interesting to look into at this particular point in time, that larger idea of being asymmetric risk and hopefully negative correlation. And again, I will just say full disclosure, when I started looking at silver like six months ago, I kind of thought I would be rewarded a little bit, you know, like, oh, probably going to probably gonna make some money on this. And Nope. <laughs> the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So if I'm wrong, I'm fully okay with just acknowledging it a year from now and saying that was another experiment, just like my zucchini lesson learned. I'm, I'm going back in, but these are two things that I've been, you know, personally, uh, trying myself. Hey, this is Andrew from the choose a five team. Hope you're enjoying the show. We're going to get right back to it after these quick messages. All right. So with that, we'd love your feedback, share in the group, you know, what it is that you're interested in, what are you looking at? What do we miss? What other additional information uh, would you have questions about? Maybe we can do additional episodes in the future. Uh, but we have an amazing segment actually teed up for you guys. We're going to be talking about a revocable living trust. This is something that you've asked us about for a long time. Sean Mullaney, the Tax guys joining us back on the show. And actually it's a segment we already recorded. So we're bringing that into this particular episode, but he's going to be sharing with us how to get full utility out of this amazing vehicle. And then just for those of you, there's actually a surprise takeaway towards the end. So I really encourage you to pay attention to that because even if you would had no interest in doing a revocable living trust, there's a tax strategy here, Brad, which is mind blowing. Yeah, this is the complete takeaway from the whole segment, right? Which is, okay, Sean came on, he talked about transferring a primary residence to children. And again, this revocable living trust, which is going to be really valuable for a segment of the population. But the last five or 10 minutes, is valuable to everybody. This is really understanding basis of assets and the difference between gifting and inheriting and how that works with your basis, what impact this could have 
on your tax situation, which is potentially many, many, many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is huge. We all need to know this, right? We talk about just kind of leveling up our thinking and understanding how the tax system works is really, really critical. So yeah, even if, again, this might not be your thing right now about transferring a primary residence, you need to listen to this segment. All right, everyone. So for this next segment, we actually wanted to go back to a conversation that we had a couple weeks ago. It was with Paula Pant from Afford Anything, and we were talking about the real estate market. Fantastic episode. If you have not yet checked it out, uh, you can go to chooseifying.com slash 330, or just look for 330 in your podcast player of choice. Definitely, definitely should listen to that. But it actually posed to us some additional thoughts, points of consideration for individuals in the financial independence community that are considering, you know, multi-generational wealth building. And specifically, is there a strategic way to purchase, to title, to own a home through that lens? And so to help us with this, Sean Mullaney's joining us on the show today, Tax Guy. You can find him at FiTaxGuy.com. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you, Jonathan? Very well. Very excited for this conversation. So I think most of us just buy a home. We just buy a home. That's it. Where's Where's the nuance? <laughs> Yeah, Jonathan. So you're absolutely right that, you know, you buy a home, you live in the home. That's great. But I think you want to push it a little further and you want to think about your loved ones, particularly I, I think about minor children, right? So, you know, we don't like to think about the downsides of life, but especially if we're in the FI community and we don't need a nickel dime our expenses, particularly in terms of things like taking care of our kids, maybe we should think about what would happen to my home if I were to die? It's not a pleasant thought, but it will save your loved ones a lot of grief and a lot of, frankly, money, right? So what am I talking about here? So let's say you know you have mom and dad, you have parents, they have children, right? You do want to think about the downside events of life. And one of them could be both mom and dad pass away suddenly, right? It could be an accident, for example. Well, okay, theoretically, under the laws of most states, your minor children would inherit the house. That's a little problematic, right? You know, if you have a five-year-old, do you really want him or her to directly own a home? And do you want your loved ones to have to go to court and probate your will or, you know, figure out, okay, parents passed away and there's a five-year-old to take care of and there's a home and we have to figure out a way either to title this in the name of that five-year-old somehow or sell it for the benefit of that five-year-old, right? That becomes very messy very quick. And if that's the case, and I, I'm here to submit to you, I think in most cases that's going to be the case. Why don't we implement a relatively cheap and efficient workaround while we're alive, while we're healthy? And that workaround is something referred to as a revocable living trust, okay? This is not some great tax planning concept. It has tax advantages because it essentially doesn't change anything, right? So what a revocable living trust is, is it's a revocable trust. So you work with a lawyer. You're going to have to hire a lawyer to do this in your home state. But what you do is you have the lawyer draft up something called a trust that is revocable, And that is just a legal agreement between, generally speaking, spouses, right? And they say, here are the terms and conditions of our trust. And we're going to transfer some assets to that trust. The big asset you would transfer and you need to work with the lawyer to retitle your home is you transfer your home to this trust. Wait, what? I'm going to transfer my home? Well, all right, let's calm down for a second. 
it actually doesn't have that much practical effect during your life, right? You still owe the mortgage, right? You're gonna wanna work with a lawyer to get your, make sure the mortgage is all taken care of appropriately, but you still owe the balance on the mortgage. You still pay the property tax. You still, if you're taking deductions on your tax return, you still deduct the property tax on your tax return, right? However, where it really comes into effect is what if mom and dad both pass away? Well, now you have this trust document that governs the disposition of the home to protect your kids. There are different options that you might want to implement if you were to die. So, you know, both parents pass away. Now you have minor children. Okay, well, what happens to the home? Is the home held for my children and their appointed guardians to live in? Is the home held to be rented out and the rental proceeds benefit my children? Is the home to be sold and the, the corpus of, you know, we generate $400,000, $600,000 worth of, of money by selling that home, is that corpus then to be held for the benefit of my children? I'm not here to give any particular person advice. And I'm, I'm here to say, look, I don't know what the right answer is in your circumstances, not at all. But what you want to do is you want to think through that with your lawyer, right? You want to say, okay, I've got a valuable asset. I want my children protected. I don't want my heirs and the kids' guardians to have to go to court to figure this out in an expensive proceeding. And there's going to be infighting in the family and lawyers' fees and court fees and retitling fees. I want this beautiful revocable trust just to sort of take care of this and everybody understands what my intentions are. And oh, by the way, it's fully revocable. So if my intentions change next year, I can revoke or in most states, you probably amend it. You got to work with your lawyer on that. But the idea here, guys, is this is not going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. You know, nobody wants to call their lawyer, but, you know, to protect your minor children, it's well worth doing that, especially if it doesn't create a big disadvantage during your lifetime. Yeah, Sean, this is really interesting. So you said in there essentially what my intentions are, right? Yes. Like that, that's what we're doing here. So give me a little maybe kind of compare and contrast with someone's preparing a will. Hopefully, you know, that in essence allows you to say, what are my intentions with most items? But we're talking about something very, very specific here with this revocable living trust. So like, why do we need this? on top yes. of or in addition to a will? Like, what's the interplay there? Really good question, Brad. So the will governs a few things. One, if you have minor children, you need a will because you need to name the guardian or guardians of your kids, right? So absolutely, you need a will. A revocable living trust doesn't do that. But what, let's just say you have a will and you use that to leave your house to your kids. That's okay. However, that means court proceedings, right? Because the will would then have to be quote unquote, probated. So your executor, right? You're going to designate somebody in the will as the executor. He or she's going to have to go to court and say, okay, so-and-so died. Here's their will. We're saying this is valid. Judge, please agree with us that this is valid. And you know, let's go through that process, right? That's going to incur some fees. It's not an illegitimate process. It's perfectly valid. However, the revocable living trust is, to my mind, more efficient. Because it takes your house, if it's in the revocable living trust, and it avoids this probate thing, and it lays out crystal clear, okay, here's what's going to happen vis-a-vis my home upon my death. 
So, you know, this reduces court filings after you pass away and it provides for the orderly disposition or keeping of your home for the benefit of your kids after you're gone. And by the way, this doesn't only apply to minor children. To my mind, that's the most important application. But what if you're a single individual and you own a home and you would leave your home to your elderly parents upon your death? You might want a revocable living trust because you don't want your elderly parents who maybe live out of state to now have to come into your home state and do a legal proceeding. That may not be optimal if they're in their 80s, right? So revocable living trusts have other applications other than homes and minor children. But I think this is just one of those low-hanging fruit items. Why not consider this? Because you just want to make sure your kids are protected. And the revocable living trust, to my mind, is just a more efficient vehicle than a will in terms of a primary residence and your kids. I have a question for you about how the, the what the interplay is with like a gift tax and transfer of title from the parent to the child. We know, we've talked about capital gains uh, on primary residence to some varying degree, but like how how does all of that get brought into this conversation? Great question, Jonathan. So part of the reason I like the revocable living trust is that it is tax efficient. It's not this great tax planning concept in that it will save you money on taxes, but what it does is it avoids gift tax during your lifetime, right? So if you make a transfer to a revocable living trust, the IRS says, that's a revocable trust. You didn't do anything. That's just still your asset from a tax perspective. So there's no form 709 to file during your lifetime. There's none of that. When you do pass away, it is a transfer to your estate and then to your whoever benefits from that estate. And theoretically, it could be subject to estate tax. Now, the estate tax exclusions are very high right now. Like 20 million high, right? Well, yeah, if you do something called portability. So it's over $11 million per person currently. And then when the first spouse dies, any unused exemption can be claimed by that second spouse. You file a gift or estate tax return. So that's one of the nice things about this, Jonathan. It doesn't create a taxable transfer from a gift tax perspective. And like I said, you still pay the mortgage. You still get the mortgage interest deduction. You still get the property tax deduction. In California, there's an issue with property taxes. It's generally speaking, as long as it's a revocable trust, it's not a transfer for California purposes, which is good. It basically leaves the playing field the same from a tax perspective. And we like that in this case. Sean, quick question about selling the house, right? Like you're in your 40s or 50s, you set this up and then, you know, life intervenes. You know, you decide to sell the house, move somewhere else. Do you dissolve this? Do you revoke this trust or how does that work? Yeah. So this is the sort of thing you're going to want to work, you know, run by your lawyer because it varies state to state. And of course, we're not giving legal advice, but yeah, so it could be that the trust itself sells the house and then the proceeds come. It could be that depending on, you know, you, you got different people to account for, right? Real estate agent, uh, mortgage brokers. It could be that the, the house needs to come out of the trust before the sale. You know, so this is definitely something to talk to your lawyer about, especially when you're forming the revocable trust. But the cool thing is you can always revoke it. So if you had to revoke it or you had to take the house out of the trust, that's not that big a deal as long as you do the titling properly. Gotcha. And and just to be clear, so the normal, the capital gains exclusion on the sales of your yes. primary residence, that's still intact, right? That's still intact because this revocable trust from a income tax perspective is generally disregarded, right? An irrevocable trust, very different outcome, right? So you, 
irrevocable trusts are something most people do not need in their life, right? You need to be very intentional and work with a lot of professionals on that. But a revocable trust, of course, you need to work with your lawyer, but it doesn't change the income tax rules in terms of that $250,000 per person exclusion. It doesn't change the, you know, like I said, mortgage interest deduction, property tax deduction, those sorts of things. You were talking about the capital gains tax. Let's talk about that capital gains tax exclusion. So on a primary residence in current times, it's $250,000 capital gains exclusion. I believe that's per person. So $500,000 for a married couple. But now we have a situation where forget the five-year-old, we have this adult that inherited the house as part of this revocable trust. They want to sell the house, I guess, you know, what, what, what happened, you know, they don't live in the state right? This happened. The revocable yep. trust was in place. They don't live in the state. They want to sell the house. What protections, if any, do they have at that point? You know, because it, the primary resident status, is that is that gone now? Yes. So essentially it's going to boil out to good news, right? So there's something called a step up in basis. When you inherit an asset that's not a retirement account, you generally get, they call it a step up in basis. So If your parents bought a home years ago for $100,000 and now it's worth half a million and then they pass away and you inherit that house, you generally get a fair market value basis on the date of of the second parent's death. What that facilitates is quick turnaround sale. All right. So, you know, my parent passed away and then they live out of state. I have no use for this home. What I can do is I can go sell that. And generally speaking, there's not going to be any capital gain on that in a close in time sale, right? There could always be, oh, you know, the market was really hot for a month. And so maybe there's a small capital gain. So that child, generally speaking, is not going to qualify for the $250,000 exclusion. They live out of state. It's not their primary residence. But the step up in basis at death because of their parents' death will protect them. Gotcha. So for those who aren't tax inclined, that's like basically saying step up in basis is more or less as if you had purchased that house for the fair market value of that day. Right. So we're saying 500,000 in this case, if you turn around and sold it for 502,000, you don't have a capital gain based on, oh, my parents bought it for a hundred K way back when. So I have a $402,000 capital gain. No, no, no. Your basis is 500,000 in this example, and you sold it for 502, you have a $2,000 capital gain, and then that applies against tax rates, et cetera. So your actual tax is only a couple hundred bucks on this. That's right. That's a, that's a good way of approaching it. Yep. I think it'd be important to do just a form of contrast here. You know, you have an elderly parent and they're saying, you know what, what if I just gift this house to my child ahead of my passing away, which would be maybe another alternative, but you know, to avoid all this mess, I just, you know, I'm getting older. I, I have this $11 million exclusion. My house is pretty valuable now compared to where it used to be. I'm just going to give it to them while I'm alive because I'm a confident of their situation. You know, like this strategy that you're laying out is in direct contrast to, I guess, that strategy. How do these two match up? Great point, Jonathan. So for those of you in the audience with adult children, I would say an outright gift of the entire house to your adult children is generally not advisable from their tax situation, right? So if you gift a house outright to anyone, generally speaking, you got to file a form 709, right? A gift tax return because of this huge exclusion, almost certainly you're not going to pay tax. I mean, there are wealthy people who might pay tax because they've run through their 11 million exclusion, 
generally speaking, you're not going to pay tax. But the problem with gifting is the adult child in this case does not get that stuff up in basis. They get your historic cost basis. Okay. So if you bought it for a hundred thousand, it's worth half a million today. They don't get the half million basis. They get the hundred thousand dollar basis that you bought, you know, 30 years ago, right? That's not a good outcome. So the revocable living trust for that situation works well because what you do is you set up the revocable living trust with a lawyer. And then as the beneficiary after your life, you say, all right, you know, the secondary beneficiary upon my death, the first beneficiary in line is my adult child. So then they inherit through the revocable living trust. And that's a much cleaner mechanism. And now they get this step up in basis because they've inherited it through the revocable living trust. And so I think this is really important, you know, when you, because these are the two strategies that you have in contrast, right? And in fact, we can even expand on top of that. And we could say, you know, maybe you have a large farm. This is something that you just, you know, you're a family and you have a large farm. Maybe it's a multi-million dollar farm. Either way, whether we're talking about a home that's appreciated significantly in value or a farm that's been longstanding in the family, if you are making the decision to gift it to the child versus the strategy that we're laying out here, it has very, very real implications for the difference in basis, right? If this farm was an insubstantial nothing that was purchased for $10,000 and is now worth many, many millions, or if we had a house that was worth 40 or 50,000 is now worth five or 600,000 with the gifting strategy, if your child ever makes the choice to sell that, they're gonna have to pay the tax on the original basis, the original basis. We're talking about massive, massive tax implications as opposed to you going through this revocable trust strategy where they're gonna automatically get that step up in basis price. So there's a way to really avoid significant pain for them by understanding this and spending a little bit of money. And I, I you know, we I haven't had a lawyer give me a quote on that, but I would imagine it's not $20,000. You know, we're talking about 500, 1,000, 200, 3,000, 3, somewhere probably in that range. And you can end up with a scenario where you're protecting your child's ability to make a decision around selling or keeping an asset without having to worry about what the tax implication of that is going to be. Sean, am I getting close? Is that fairly accurate in terms yeah, of I mean, what this- I think you're thinking about it right, that you know you should be thinking about how your adult children, minor children, elderly parents, whoever it is, is going to inherit the house, is going to inherit the house. And the revocable living trust strategy has really nice tax basis consequences so that if the house needs to be sold you know, shortly after death, Generally speaking, it's a good tax outcome. So I think that's exactly right. Basis planning is part of the revocable living trust strategy, um, and it's something to, to run by your lawyer. Absolutely. Yeah, Sean, and just one last question slash point with that basis strategy, because this is critical. This could be you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, so we need to be real precise here. If it's a gift while the person giving the gift is still living, then the basis stays at their original basis, right? That's what we're saying. But if it's either the revocable living trust upon death, or if it just goes through the regular will, or just through however you know the, the estate is executed, then there is a step up in basis. So the person getting the gift upon death, no matter how we're looking at it in these, again, we're not lawyers, but this is, you know, this is my strong understanding. Upon death, there is the step up in basis, right? You always prefer to inherit an appreciated asset instead of receiving it through an outright gift. Awesome. Yeah, thank you, Sean. That clarification is really, really critical. So thanks a lot. So as with many things, you just need to know, well, what's my basis? So, you know, even as we're about to wrap this up uh, and we're talking about your basis, we've actually 
I think uncovered something that was a blind spot for me and judging by kind of Brad's like, hmm, thinking it might be a blind spot for him a little bit. And that is actually talking about the nature of giving gifts versus inheriting something. Now we've, we've clearly talked about the importance of a will and a revocable trust, but I think what we just kind of blindly stumbled onto here is the important, the important, cause not everybody cares about what happens with their house. You know, like some people care, some people don't, but this whole idea of the basis and what happens to the basis, depending on whether or not it's given as a gift or whether or not it's inherited, Sean, it seems like there's something massive here for people to appreciate. Very important tax planning concept, right? So this can apply to say financial assets, right? So stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs. If you gift an appreciated asset during your lifetime, the recipient just gets that, they call it carryover basis. So if you bought Acme stock for a dollar a share, it's now worth a thousand dollars a share. If you gift that stock to your son, daughter, you know, anybody other than a spouse, generally speaking, what's going to happen, well, even a spouse is going to take a carryover basis, but don't worry about that for the time being. But if you gift that asset, guess what? The recipient takes that carryover basis of just a dollar a share, right? The recipient wants you to pass, to die, and they want to inherit. Inheriting, generally speaking, equals step up in basis, right? Mm. So that the basis when they go to sell is the fair market value versus gifting is the old basis, which for an appreciated asset is not a good thing. Just one little nuance on that though. The financial assets, generally speaking, have a beneficiary designation form or a payable on death form. So you don't, uh, wills matter, right? Revocable living trusts matter. But the best thing to do on your financial assets is just make sure you have an up-to-date beneficiary designation form or payable on death form on file with the financial institution that reflects your current wishes to make sure that that passes at your death the way you want it to pass. Brad, am I correct in assuming that you had a small light bulb go off there as we were having this conversation? Yeah, this is this is really, really critical. So it's important that everybody hears this. If you're receiving this a gift or if you're receiving some you know, money from an estate, you are not paying tax at that point. That's critical. If you're getting a gift, you're not paying tax. Okay. But the key is when you go to sell that item, right? That's the distinction here. And everyone listening to this is going to benefit from this, right? So if you received it as a gift, you have that old basis. So there's going to be a big tax when you go to sell this in all likelihood, assuming it has appreciated significantly. Whereas if you received it through an estate, if through this revocable living trust, through a will, just through probate, whatever it may be, you get the step up in basis to the fair market value on you know essentially that date of death. So there was a huge, huge distinction here that we all are going to benefit from understanding this because you know some people say, oh, I want to, I want to give these gifts while I'm still living, right? So okay, that's great. You're not going to pay tax giving that gift in all likelihood because it's going to be as part of your overall gift tax exemption, which is massive as we've talked about. It's it's $10 million or $11 million, right? So you know, just about nobody is going to pay tax on that. The recipient of the gift is not going to pay tax then, but there's that ticking time bomb in there of they have your old basis. So that's the distinction that you need to be aware of. So yeah, Jonathan, uh, I actually, I did not know about the carryover basis of the gift. So, I mean, that is the critical part. I definitely did know about, you know, upon death and getting the step up, but man, this is huge. I mean, Sean, 
pun intended here, you just gave a massive gift to everybody listening to this because it's it's really critical. You're giving away the house. Yeah. I mean, one thing about, you know, to think about is if you're looking to gift, cash can be a great asset to gift, right? Because there's no gain or loss when you dispose of cash, right? So for those in our audience who are thinking about, hey, I'm going to give a little bit to my adult kids or even, you know, my children, you know, maybe cash is just the answer there because you don't create this latent tax issue because of this basis issue when you gift cash. Then encourage them to put it inside of a Roth IRA to match their earned working. <laughs> if they qualify, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> There's always details, Sean. There's always details. <laughs> All right. Oh, man. The Fi Tax Guy, Sean Mulaney. You can find him at fitaxguy.com. We'll have links to all the relevant articles so you can do your own research, dig a little bit deeper. But Sean, huge thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, my friends. Hope you got value from this episode. Definitely like, comment, subscribe, share with a friend. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.